Welcome to the Limitless Mindset Podcast. This podcast will teach you to acquire superhuman mental abilities and hack your reality. In today's episode of the Limitless Mindset Podcast, my brother and I expose seven self-help fallacies as well as showing you the Socratic Method. I am a tall person. I am a tall person. I am becoming taller every day. I'm going to be six feet tall. Uh, what are you doing, John? I heard this person on TV say that I should just repeat these positive affirmations about the kind of person that I want to become, and then I become that person. So I'm, I've always wanted to be a taller person. And, uh, and how's that working out for you, John? Well... You know, I've noticed that I'm getting taller, but it's only by how much my hair grows if I put gel in it. But I heard that persistence is very important, so I'm going to keep trying this out and see where it gets me. Hey, good luck, man. I, I believe in you. <laughs> Thanks, Woody. Okay, so today we're talking about self-help fallacies. And I feel like we should preface this episode by saying that self-help is in general a pretty good thing. It's pretty important to live consciously and be focused on trying to improve yourself and focusing on where how you can get ahead in life. And so we don't want to completely throw self-help under the bus with this episode, but there is a lot of popular self-help messages that people really build their lives upon a foundation of that we think there's some real existential evidence that these messages are false and are ultimately going to keep people from accomplishing their goals. And so one of them that you've probably heard of a lot is people that use positive self-affirmations about things that they are having weaknesses with. And this So this is referred to a lot of times as positive self-affirmations. And this was actually partially disproven by a study by the University of Waterloo. And what they found in regards to uh, 
positive self-affirmations was that if people were making positive self-affirmations about an area of their life that they were already very confident about and that they already had plenty of evidence that they were really good at that particular thing, then the positive self-affirmations would increase their performance in that area of their life. If people were doing positive self-affirmations about something that really wasn't true about them or where they really didn't have any confidence coming from the real world, those positive self-affirmations would actually hurt their performance and their state of mind and their mood some, and they would actually keep them from making progress in areas that they needed to make progress. So the joke that we're making about someone saying that they're going to become a taller person, that is obviously an overblown example of this, but say, for example, if someone was not a very good salesperson, and they drove to work every day and as they drove to work they sat in their car saying I am a good salesperson I am a good salesperson I am a good salesperson that's actually gonna hurt them more than it's gonna help them if they're not in actuality a high-performing salesperson what a person like that should focus on is they should drive to car drive to work every day in their car and think about the Uh, they should think about the different skill sets that they're going to need to apply to become a better salesperson and they should think about examples of when they were good at those actual sales skill sets and that will actually be more effective than repeating a positive affirmation. So what you're trying to say is that it sort of works but it's not it doesn't work as well as everyone thinks it works. That's correct, and it's actually probably the Waterloo study, which we'll link to, indicates that it's hurting the people that need it the most. The next self-help fallacy is that winners never quit and that quitters never win. And this is one that you hear a lot in reference to when people are talking about the value of persistence as a character quality for when you're working on stuff. You, especially within entrepreneurial circles, you hear this one a lot. You hear the Albert Einstein quote that c- coming up with the theory of general relativity was 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration and persistence is a very valuable quality but a lot of times people fall into a martyr complex when it comes to persistence and they believe that they need to sacrifice themselves and sacrifice their quality of life and sacrifice living uh, living in a balanced manner to working really, really persistently hard. And they need to be aware that there is a lot of sunk cost. There's a sunk cost fallacy that people have that they believe, okay, I've committed six months to this particular goal. I've committed nine months to this particular goal. I've committed two months to this particular goal. And that by moving on from that goal, by quitting that goal, they are essentially losing what they've put into it at that point. And what they need to look at is the flip side of if they commit another six months, another nine months, another two years to a particular goal that's not panning out to them, what else could they be doing in that time? And a lot of times, if a lot of times 
the things that they could be that they're trading a activity that's not resulting in getting them closer to a goal a lot of times another activity can get them more results in other areas so i think we need to be have a balanced view of persistence and working hard at things but also being able to always have a mindset where we're willing to walk away from things and i think it's important that we set ourselves up when we're doing deals that we have an option for ourselves to get out of any given deal that we're getting into. With the sunk cost fallacy, what that reminds me of is a poker player who's been going along and all of a sudden someone goes all in and they've already committed a good deal of their chips and so they think they feel obligated to continue playing the round of poker when in reality they shouldn't be. I'd like to give a example of when quitting paid off in a major, major way. So earlier this year, I visited the Panama Canal in Central America. And the Panama Canal is one of those things that you really have to visit in person to comprehend the huge scale of human effort that went into it. The Panama Canal is the only time in history that human beings have physically cut a continent into two pieces. And the Panama Canal, interestingly, is actually a result of people that were very hardworking, very smartworking, quitting You see, in the case of the Panama Canal, the Panama Canal was not the product of a single person's imagination and inspiration and guiding process. The Panama Canal was a concept that was actually originally started by the French, and the French worked very, very hard at it, and they actually made surprisingly little progress. They worked for many, many years in the most difficult conditions under all kinds of uh, famine and health conditions, and over 20,000 people actually died working on the Panama Canal under the French, and they failed to build it. After that, Teddy Roosevelt, the American president, decided that for America to become a real global power, they needed to open up trade in between the hemispheres. So he became very committed to it. And under Teddy Roosevelt, there were multiple head engineers that took on the Panama Canal project and worked for each one of them, worked on it for years and years and years and committed huge amounts of their life to it. And I think it ended up being either two or three, we'll do a link to the story on it, ended up being either two or three extremely competent engineers worked for many, many years and gave up on the project and then handed it off to other engineers who were able to bring in new perspectives and bring in new knowledge and bring in a new fusion of creativity towards accomplishing this momentous goal. And so in the case of the Panama Canal, if it wasn't for people that were smart enough to know when to give up, the Panama Canal would not exist. All right. Very well said, Jonathan. Our next point is that money doesn't make you happy, which has been drilled into our heads from a very early age that money doesn't make you happy. And I'm not sure who said this first or where it came from, but, you know, we don't entirely agree with this statement, uh, I guess, to say it lightly, because to start off, 
if you look at the inverse of it, lack of money will make you unhappy. I think I think that's been proven pretty outright. If you're in poverty, it's a lot less easy to be happy. Money funds the necessary tools to biological happiness. Everything you need to be fulfilled as a human being requires money for the most part. And so money is such a indispensable tool in that equation that money is required to make you happy. I'd like to talk about a couple of the, I think, most important tools to biological happiness which money can fund. So we know that for us to be happy, it depends within our mind on two primary neurotransmitters, which are serotonin and dopamine. And there's a lot of things in our life which will raise our serotonin levels and raise our dopamine levels. So things like eating a good diet, eating a diet that's organic and that's full of the right kind of foods, which we talk about in some other episodes, and we actually sell an ebook on our website which breaks down all of those foods. Things like nootropic supplementation will increase your neurotransmitter levels. Things like a gym membership or exercise equipment will relieve you of stress, which increases your neurotransmitter levels for happiness. Things like hanging out with family, spending time with friends, pretty much all of these things require money in one sort or another. I mean, it's not that we're saying that there's no way that money can make you not happy. There's a lot of ways that you can spend your money that people have been very unhappy. There are some best practices for spending money in a way that will make you happy. One of the biggest things you can do to ensure that you are extracting the maximum amount of happiness out of your money is to delay your satisfaction from the things that you purchase. Now, this is kind of counterintuitive to the way our society works because the way our society works is it says, hey, here's a television, here's a car, here's a boat, here's a piece of clothing, here's a dinner at a nice restaurant. Buy these things now, experience the happiness and the enjoyment from them now, and then pay for them later. And this is actually diametrically opposed to what's biologically proven to be a more happy way to spend money. The way to spend money and extract maximum happiness is to spend the money and then have a certain of time between certain period of time elapse between spending the money and actually receiving the product. So if you think about like when you were a kid and Christmas time or Hanukkah was coming around or whatever holiday you celebrate when your family gave gifts. What was so great about that holiday? Well, it was seeing the presents under the tree or whatever and seeing them day after day after day and imagining and fantasizing about what those presents could be and fantasizing about how much you would enjoy those presents when you actually got them. And when you are fantasizing and imagining and creating these mental pictures of yourself enjoying something that you're going to be spending money on, you extract, biologically you extract just as much happiness from that 
fantasy of that particular thing as you do from the actual experience itself. So if at all possible, always find ways to pay for items and then get them later on. So some examples of this would be as opposed to buying items at the store, like let's say you need a new pair of shoes or you want to buy a new TV. Go and buy that thing on the internet instead and go and select the form of shipping for that item, which is actually the slowest form of shipping. And so for that entire week coming up to it, as opposed to one moment when your dopamine levels and your serotonin levels are filling your brain up as you open up that box for that brand new PlayStation 2 or TV or whatever it is, as opposed to one moment of enjoyment, you'll have that moment for every single day leading up to it. And a lot of times I think about when the time that a friend of mine bought a brand new Maserati from the Ferrari dealership here in town. And I remember we went and we looked at the car and we drove this beautiful $120,000 sports car. And then it took almost 10 days for us to line up all the financing and get all the pieces in place that we needed to actually go and get that car. And over that entire time, we thought about that every single day. And we looked we looked at pictures of this brand new Maserati Gran Turismo and there was so much more enjoyment that we extracted out of that car because we had that 10 days before we actually got the car. No, I totally agree with you and I'd like to just interject here. I would be remiss if I did not state this, John. Uh, they haven't sold PlayStation 2s in like 10 years, bro. It's PlayStation 3 now. I'm I'm sorry. It's you, you can't buy a brand new PlayStation 2 anymore. I just I just thought that uh you know the fans out the listeners would have been like, "Oh John, oh foolish Jonathan talking about PlayStation 2s." Also, I'd like to totally agree with you on this point. I remember when I was a kid and I wanted a Palm Pilot and I had to wait like 3 months to get this awesome Palm Pilot, which is basically just like the worst iPhone you could ever buy, but it was awesome and I loved it. My next point is that with happiness, if you think about the moments in your life that have made you the most happy, they're usually experiences. And yeah, some experiences are free, but most experiences you, you have to pay for. And so the experience of a good thing is often more powerful than going to the store and buying a TV, buying a PlayStation. You know, it's going on that cruise with your family, you know, spending a week in the cabin in the mountains. It's experiences like that that require the money for you to have them. You know, I heard a kind of pithy saying the other day, but it's really, really true. And here's what it is. Travel is the only thing you buy which makes you richer. And this is a sentiment that you'll hear us repeating from time to time on this podcast because the kind of experiences that you'll have when you're traveling and you're getting outside of your geographic geographic comfort zone, those kind of experiences will feed you happiness and they'll feed you fulfillment in your life during the times of your life that your life is not that exciting and they'll do this in a couple of ways you'll have little moments in your life where you remember something exciting that you did when you were traveling or when you were well outside of your geographic or maybe your physical comfort zone like maybe you're going to do something crazy like go rock climbing like my brother's going to do next uh next next week or no that's in three weeks correct 
on the on the 13th so when you're brought back mentally to these times that you got outside of your geographic and your physical comfort zone you're fed happiness by that also the amount of validation that you get from other people when you tell them about your your travels and the adventures that you've had that can be a real positive feedback so i urge people that whenever given the option spend your money on experiences not things we'd like to talk about fake it till you make it or this is sometimes articulated in an opposite way as be genuine. So you hear this a lot of times from self-help advice in one way or another. It's that you got to be genuine. And there is something to that. I think it is important to have a level of being genuine. But I think that you have to realize that faking it till you make it is a pretty constant part of life if you're really going to shoot for big ambitious goals which are the kind of things that people that listen to this podcast shoot for and as I was researching this I came across an interesting psychological phrase it's called imposter syndrome and so imposter syndrome is something that's very very common among highly successful people so think about people that are like entrepreneurs that have built big companies people that are millionaires and billionaires people that are CEOs of big large organizations people that are doing really genuine genuinely large work that's affecting the world in a positive way consistently suffer from imposter syndrome which is the feeling that you're kind of faking what you do and I saw this article where they were talking about some really big names that were in Hollywood and they didn't want to give the names out specifically because they were it was like a psychologist that was like a psychologist to really big time Hollywood stars but some of the biggest names that are out there and that those people when they're in the psychologist's office they 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 told the psychologist that they had this deep-seated feeling that they were actually an imposter and that they were faking what they'd been doing but they had somehow fooled everyone and so as the people continued to study imposter syndrome what they found is that imposter syndrome actually has a high correlation to people that are genuinely successful in what they are doing so the advice that we have from this is a little bit counterintuitive but the advice here is that if you're working very hard and if you're fairly successful and you feel like you're uh, and you feel like you are faking and kind of and and not you know a obviously we're not advocating that you do anything deceptive to anyone but if you have a feeling that bugs you in the back of your mind that you've kind of manipulated your way to your position or that you might not be completely the very best person in your position that's actually a sign that you're pretty well set for that position and that you've genuinely achieved it so I think the advice that we can take away on the flip side of this is that if you are working on your career you're working on going towards a really big goal and you are doing a lot of fake it till you make it type stuff but you're not feeling the imposter syndrome then that means that maybe you do need to focus on being more genuine and doing more that like hard work head down feet on the pavement you know doing what it needs to do getting into that hustle mode so basically what you're saying is there's no possible way to be happy either you're 
Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where it's it's a it's a good problem to have. If you have imposter if you have imposter syndrome, or if you feel a little bit of guilt because you're faking it till you make it, then that's a better problem to have than being a person that's not busy with fulfilling work. I mean, I could I could relate. I feel like I've felt this sometimes in my personal life because I I mean I'm not going to claim to be you know successful you know by by any stretch i feel like i'm still getting started and going about my stuff but i found that i'll have this inspiration and i'll do something and it'll be new and fresh and exciting to me and it'll be something i'm good at and so then i'll continue to do it and i'll keep doing the same thing but i won't feel that same exciting feeling about doing it so then i feel like i'm just going through the steps repeating this process and it doesn't feel as genuine as the creativity that arose when you first did it so i can definitely see how the uh imposter syndrome can strike the next the next thing i want to talk about is something that you hear by a lot of self-help people that positive attitude is paramount that that is the most important thing you can do no matter what else as long as you have a positive attitude you're gonna be okay which i am getting taller John's already at, what are you at, 5'8", five, 5'9", five, now? It's only been 10 minutes. He's looking good. Uh, but we, I mean, we disagree with this. Positive attitude is important. It's it's crucial, I mean, to stay, to stay dedicated to what you're doing. You need to believe in it. You need to be positive about it. But let's not get over the fact of how important hard work is, how important skill acquisition is. That sort of stuff is what really drives it. Are there successful people which aren't positive but work their tails off and have great skills absolutely are there unsuccessful people that have super positive attitudes probably i think if you can combine all these things the hard work the positive attitude and the acquisition of important skills that's where you see success that's what people should be harping on that that's what you need to be doing is getting those three things together not just this singular positive attitude is the only thing that matters and i think that might be because that's three things which is harder to remember than just a single thing and positive attitude is easy you know so if you can just tell someone to do one thing instead of really getting into the nitty-gritty of it i feel like that might be why this is the way it is and you know people tell me a lot of times i'll hear this that i have a really positive attitude i'm told this pretty consistently by people in my in my life and the funny thing and you probably hear that a lot also woody correct I do. I've I've heard that about you many times before. I've heard people say, "Wow, Woody has such an amazing attitude." And I don't know about you, Woody, but I spend an exceptionally small amount of time trying to have a positive attitude. For me, my positive attitude is a reflection of the hard work that I do on fulfilling products and it's a reflection of the healthy way that I manage my own biology and the healthy ways that I manage my own psychologies. If I feel myself slipping into a negative mood because maybe I didn't have quite as productive day as I wanted to, I'll go for a run and really sweat it out for 30 minutes and at the end of that time, my pheromone are just firing like crazy and I'm back into a super positive attitude. So I would say look at the people that have the most positive attitudes and I would say the majority of those people probably don't even spend 
uh, spend a very small amount of effort on those positive attitudes. So let's focus a little bit more on hard work, on fulfilling projects, and on skill acquisition, and that positive attitude will come as a result of those things. Okay, very well said, John. My next point is something that we also heard when we were younger, probably by every teacher we had throughout elementary and middle school. They said, you can do anything you want to do, anything in the world. You want to be president of the United States? You can do that. You want to be an astronaut? You can do that. I, I'm still going to be an astronaut. John's, John's still on the waiting list to be I, an astronaut. <laughs> But the truth is, while yes, with enough hard work, you can do anything, I think that's sometimes mistaken for you can do everything. Because I found myself thinking this, being like, well, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do this, and this, and this, and this. And I realized, if I want to be successful in any capacity, I need to choose what I'm going to do, and then stick to that. I can't be a world-class guitar player as well as great at five other things i gotta find what i want to do and really stick to it and believe in it because my brother said this i've said it it's a quote we like you are more likely to die of indigestion of of too much opportunity than starvation of too little if, if you want to try everything out and do a little bit of everything you can do that. There's there's no one telling you that you can't do that. But at the end of the day, you probably won't be successful at anything. I think the phrase is, jack of all trades, master of none. A good way to put this into action in your life is practice saying no to things. Because... People that are naturally positive and outgoing and social and smart and ambitious, we have a little bit of an Achilles heel. And we've talked about this Achilles heel before. And this Achilles heel is that we say yes to way too many things. And we get ourselves in this pattern of saying yes to too many things. And we take on two things. And the result is that we have a mediocrity going on in our lives because we're involved with so many different things. So I encourage you to practice saying no to as many things as possible. And I would encourage you to even do it a little bit arbitrarily. Like, I will have times where I'll be talking with family members or I'll be talking with friends about something and they'll ask me, they'll give me a very small request. And if it's possible for me to grant that request, but not in the way that they asked me to do it, I will always tell them no just so that I can get myself mentally more into the psychology of saying no to things. You're going to be a great dad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Woody. Thanks, Woody. It's it's going to be it's going to be a while. It's going to it's going to be a while after, before that one happens. Dad, we're Dad, we're, we're really hungry. No, son. Practice your high skill level acquisitions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next self-help fallacy is that time is your most valuable asset. This is one that you hear a lot, and this is one that in a lot of cases we actually agree that time is a very valuable asset, but it is not always the most valuable. I would contend that the most valuable asset is your attention 
attention because the things that will really get you closer towards your goals in life, they require a very, very high amount of your attention. And biologically, we only have so much attention that we can give every single day. It's somewhere around, I think, depending upon the level of optimization, I think at the lower end, it's around eight hours a day. I think that if people are really doing a lot of biohacking and they've got their diet right and they're on some of the nootropics that we recommend, I think you can push it up into about the 10 or 11 hour range a day. But after that, you have a very finite amount of attention. I think uh, if you think back to when you were in math class and it's a 90 minute class and you know how math class is and it's just nonstop, un, you know, completely 100% focused attention, you get out of math class and your, your brain is just shot from how hard you were focusing and how attentive and how much you were engaged that, I mean, if you had to go home and do your homework, you have to take a hour break just to unwind and get your brain back in sync so like in the last self-help fallacy practice saying no to things that demand your attention make every make a list of things that are in the urgent yet unimportant and make it a point to say no to those things and realize the lost opportunity cost of your attention. So please realize the lost opportunity cost of paying attention to unimportant things. Think about what are your most productive activities that get you towards your goal. What are your activities that make you the very most money and next time you're tempted to spend time say watching TV or say you're solving someone else's problem that they've offloaded on you or you're doing activities that are amusing but that they're not really getting you places consider what it's costing you to do these activities in comparison with your very most productive activities. Now, I do think it's important that we have some leisure time throughout our days. And so I think it's important to look at what are our own personal cycles of productivity through our day. And at what portions of our day do we feel the very most productive and when are we getting the most things done and during those times be extra vigilant about saying no to giving your attention or giving your time to low value activities but as you get towards the other parts of your day where you're a little bit less productive you can be much more flexible with how you pay your attention I don't know how you feel about this John you're kind of a creative person I found that a lot of the work I do, it's not at a place of employment. It's sitting in my home on my laptop. I found that really late at night, I can be, I feel the most productive. Knowing the whole world is asleep and there's not all those different distractions, I feel like it's very calming, very peaceful, and kind of puts me in the right mindset to really just go to work. I don't know what do you do. You feel that way, John? This is something that I have mixed feelings on because I know that there are some people that get really productive at nighttime and you want to work around what works best for you and getting things done. But I would say if you do feel like you're getting more stuff done at night, look at a 
a little bit more at what are the circumstances circumstances that are facilitating you be more being more productive at night and if possible see if you can duplicate those circumstances during the daytime because you know there's a reason that people say you know don't burn daylight don't spend daylight doing something that's not productive we are biologically wired to be the very most productive during the daytime and there's actually a lot of studies and evidence that if you spend time at night working at night and you get yourself into a mode where you're working at night that it messes up your circadian rhythm because your body is not going down and resting as the sun goes down and that it will actually cause your telomeres to shorten faster because you're not going through this natural circadian rhythm of the light coming up and being productive and then the light going down and becoming unproductive. So I would say experiment with that a little bit because ultimately it's going to be better for your aging cycle if you can work and be productive during the daytime and then relax and sleep at nighttime. You're talking about your telomeres and what was the other thing telomeres and the circadian cycle what how does that work in conjunction to your chakras your chakras <laughs> i am not an expert on chakras but i'm sure that it has i'm sure it has an effect on it you know what's interesting is the chakras i saw a infographic of this the chakras are actually in the same places that all the human glands are so thousands of years ago when the indian spiritual you know spiritual people mapped out where the chakras were they somehow knew where the different glands were so i thought that was interesting but i'm i'm not sure how it relates to chakras maybe someone will tweet at us about this who knows more what you guys didn't see is when my brother was shooting down <laughs> me saying that i like to work at night is it was three minutes of uninterrupted eye contact just this steely icy stare as he <laughs> refuted and tore down me liking to work at night that's what you guys were missing those are all of the self-help fallacies that we have time to address today and again we want to close this we want to kind of make this episode a a, a, a criticism sandwich of self-help criticism sandwich is where you say something good about something you give some critical feedback and then you say another thing good about it overall self-help and personal development is very important to getting ahead but there are on average 3500 different self-help books that are published every single year and many of those books are giving information out that just isn't true or it hasn't been scientifically verified. So when you are looking at a piece of self-help advice or at a piece of at a self-help platitude and let's be honest our lives it's very hard in our society to not be bombarded with at least several self-help platitudes every single day. I know anytime that I log on to my Facebook or any of my social media accounts, I see multiple 10, 15 people reposting Facebook memes or reposting pithy quotes with some type of self-help message. And I think it's really easy to kind of build our internal motivation around these kind of messages. All I know is I'm selfish, insecure, and a little bit impatient 
But if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. Oh gosh, that is that is my my least favorite self-help platitude out there, Woody. So what we want to do whenever we see these self-help platitudes or whenever we hear people making these these general generalizations about life and reality is we want to apply the Socratic method of thought. The Socratic method of thought goes kind of like this, is you listen to a platitude or you hear a a general statement made and you ask yourself, okay, are there exceptions to that statement or is that statement always true? And if that statement is always true, then then that statement passes the Socratic method and you can accept that statement as a existential fact of the world and life. So some statements that would pass the Socratic method is that the world is round. It's actually an oval, but here's an example. An to- oval? It's, it's, it's an oval. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson taught me that. Uh, but like two plus two is four. That's going to be true every time. That passes the Socratic, that passes the Socratic test. A statement that wouldn't pass the Socratic test would be, don't judge people. And this is one that you hear a lot. It has its origins in, I believe, some Bible verses, but the Bible verses don't really say that directly. They have a lot of other messages going on. But this is one that you hear repeated a lot, is that you shouldn't judge people. But if you think about this one, let's look for exceptions for this rule. So first of all, there are people that it is their job to judge people. There are judges. There's a municipal system. So we know right off the bat this doesn't quite pass the Socratic method test. If you are going into a business partnership with someone, you need to make some type of judgment about their character. If someone is paying you money for something, you need to make some type of judgment about whether this is a good transaction to undertake. If you're trusting someone in one respect, you need to make some type of objective judgment about what's going on. I once was doing rehab on my knee, and there was this guy who was about 6'8", who drove a Harley-Davidson, bald, probably weighed about 300 pounds, huge dude, and he had a tattoo on his arm, only God can judge me. And I was like, yes, he can. I'm not going to judge you in any way, shape, or form, big terrifying white power bill. Not happening. Not happening. (laughs) So what's important with the Socratic method is that it prompts us to think more precisely about the things in our life and about the especially about the moral attitudes that we encounter as we're going about and as we think more precisely that will enable us to think more critically and to think more creatively and to act more strategically so i would advise you throughout this entire week whenever you hear people making sweeping generalizations or absolute moral statements or whenever you hear people repeating a pithy statement go ahead and break it down by the socratic method and i have a quick example of where i took a very common statement and broke it down to what i believe 
Socrates would see as a pure, objective, virtuous statement. So you, you see people a lot of times using this platitude where they say, I hate or I dislike people that are fake. I only deal with people that are real and genuine, and I'm a real, genuine person. And so... Obviously, this completely crumbles as a statement if we look at it from a Socratic method perspective because everyone in our culture is dishonest or has a degree of duplicity, uh, I would say, almost daily. Some people say that, we, that, ever, that the average person lies up to seven, seven times a day. And I know a lot of times I can count seven white little lies that I tell in a day. That's fairly common. And I think if you're honest with yourself, that's, uh, that's very, fairly common as well. So I'd like to break the statement down into more of a Socratically pure statement. So as opposed to saying, I'm a real person, I'm a genuine person, I'm not going to change myself for you, I'm not a fake person, I abhor artificiality, here's what I would say as a more logical statement is that I endeavor to relate to you in as real and genuine manner that I can, as long as it is for the purpose of gaining or providing value in our relationship. I promise that if I ever am not completely honest with you, it is only because I believe with a clear conscience that doing so will bring more value and happiness to our relationship. That's weird you say that, John, because that's word for word the tattoo I have on my chest right now. That is that is scary. If 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 there's ever a woman that gets that you know done as a, a lower tattoo stamp on her back, she's I, I will be in love with her instantaneously. Anyways, obviously people don't really talk that way very often. But I think if we want to become limitless, we need to take all of these general, positive, self-help platitudes and messages that we're hearing so frequently, and we need to start applying the Socratic method and breaking them down into more precise, accurate, truthful thoughts, and that that's going to lead us to living better lives, ultimately.